Chance, thank you for leading us in, in prayer. And to those who led us in, in worship, in musical worship, we're grateful for the time and the, uh, and the talents that God has given you. What wonderful songs we, we sang together today. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, be turning with me in, in uh, your Bibles to John chapter 20. We come this morning to verse 19. We'll be looking at verses 19 to 23 as we continue our way through, through this, this gospel. Um, there is a significant difference in this morning's passage compared to what we looked at last week together last Sunday, even though Jesus appeared bodily last week. Uh, the difference is in the focus. The focus of the dialogue in those verses that we saw seven days ago was predominantly on Mary Magdalene. Uh, this morning, the focus has really turned to Jesus himself and specifically to the significance of his bodily resurrection. And what we're told about here conveys some powerful realities to us. And we should be very grateful to our Lord that as he leads us to sit underneath his word this morning, he brings these things to our attention once again and calls us to meditate on them. Uh, one of them we get here by what we see Here's one way to think of what we'll do this morning. One comes to us by means of what we see, and the other comes to us by means of what we get to hear. That is to say, we, we see the display of our resurrected Lord, his very body. And when we see that, we're seeing the kind of life that is waiting for us as we wait for him. That's one thing that we get to consider together this morning. The other is that as we hear then the commission that he gives, to his disciples, we're finding out how Jesus plans to govern his people as they are waiting for him. Let's read the passage together this morning and see and hear this display of resurrection life. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, verses 19 to 23. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Can you tell in just hearing that read, there is quite a bit for us to consider and to wrestle with together this morning. This is quite... Quite a passage. And we start with the sight that they saw and that we're getting to see through this testimony, this experience. You notice how specific John is in describing the setting of this. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. What is John's purpose here 
in deciding to be this specific. For example, about the door to the room being locked. Why does he mention that to us? If you have a New American Standard Bible, you're reading that the doors were shut. This verb can be translated shut. But the idea behind it, either way, is of a circumstance where someone's entrance and passage is denied them, right? In fact, the technical definition of the verb, if you look it up, is to prevent passage at an opening. And then it suggests shut, lock, bar. To prevent passage. So again, what is John's point? His point is that there was not a way into this room that men had available to them. And this was a state of being that the disciples had put the room in deliberately, haven't they? Because they were afraid of the Jewish leadership. And John tells us, while the room is in that state, while there is no way in, Jesus came and stood among them. His body is not a body that is kept out of the room by a lock. Now, what in the world does that mean? I don't know. It's not telling us this in order to help us understand the working dynamics of his body. It's telling us that we're looking at something here. As we look at the risen Lord, we're looking at something that is not of this age. That's what it's telling us. Add to that what we read in verse 20. We'll skip over Jesus' words for a moment. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Most seem to assume that what Jesus is showing them are scars rather than holes. We're not given the details, but we're seeing here a body that has been restored to complete function, healed of what were mortal wounds, and yet healed in a way that I think you could well describe as artistic. I mean, he's completely healed, and yet some mark of it remains, obviously on purpose, by virtue of the one who has, who has renewed him in this way. Mark's left as an enduring testament to what happened. Again, how does that work? I don't know. It isn't telling us in order to explain the workings of it. It's telling us that we're looking at something that is not of this age. Something new is here. And it's really worth our time to think about these bodily realities and even to think about them from the point of view of Christ himself, uh, to think about the fact that this was a change for Jesus himself, not just a change for the witnesses. Christ is standing there in a new body. Before the resurrection, Jesus lived as a true human being, a, in fact, sinless human being, and yet a human in a human body that accorded with this present age. In his humanity, he was naturally aging. In his humanity, he grew weary and needed rest, John 4, 6. In his humanity, injury was possible and, in fact, could lead to death and did lead to death for his body. But on this evening, he appears to them in a physical existence that has changed. This resurrection body is not like Lazarus' resurrection body when he walked out of the tomb which wound up dying all over again, didn't it? Romans 6, 9 tells us that Christ was, quote, raised from the dead, never to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Which is true not just in a spiritual sense, but in a bodily sense as well. 
And as the disciples spent time with Jesus, learning about him, coming to understand the things that they were permitted to understand about his physical existence, they spoke about those things to us in the scriptures. Consider some of these descriptions. How is it that Paul describes Jesus, for example, to be the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1.18, or the first fruits of those who are asleep in 1 Corinthians 15.20? How is Jesus, in his resurrection, described that way when he is not the first human being to experience resurrection from the dead? Lazarus was resurrected from the dead before Jesus was. How is Jesus described in the New Testament as the firstborn from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep? It's because he is the first human being to be raised in the life of the age to come, not the life of this age. If you're interested to think more about this, you need to spend some time with 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because Paul goes to great lengths speaking to this stuff. He describes the future of those who belong to Christ's kingdom, and he says things like, quote, we will all be changed. The dead will be raised imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. And this, he says, happens in a particular order. In verse 23 there, he says, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are his at his coming. This is how he describes this. Jesus stands among them as the head, the first, of a kind of human being that nobody else is yet. I mean, just think about that. He stands there in that room with them, greeting them, as a kind of human being that does not exist elsewhere on the earth or in all of creation. And yet, as a kind of human being that all of God's people are destined to become at the resurrection. Ours is a human body that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, that is sown, that's talking about when we die and we are buried, sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. And spiritual there does not mean non-material. It doesn't mean not physical. It means a bodily existence born by the Spirit, and characterized by the life and power of the Spirit of God. In fact, the verse right before that characterized our current bodies, the ones you're in right now, with the word weakness, and then compared it to the body that will be ours in the resurrection with the word power, weakness to power. A spiritual body, a bodily existence that's described by some with phrases like dominated by the Spirit, or directed by the Spirit. I read a helpful comparison from Sinclair Ferguson about these two lives. He says, the, the present life is lived, we all understand this to be true as Christians, the present life is lived in the tension between the already and the not yet of grace, where the weakness of the flesh and the energy of the indwelling Spirit coalesce. This is true of Christians, isn't it? That, by the way, is not true of unbelievers who are dead in their sins in these ways. This is the life, the, the already life of the believer, indwelling energy of the spirit and yet the persisting weakness of the flesh. So he goes on like this. But in the resurrection body, that tension will cease to exist. For this new body is spiritually constituted. 
And the first of this kind is what we're witnessing in this passage. The first of this kind has entered the room. (laughs) We ought to remember as well that the dead body is not still in the tomb, is it? It is gone. There is some continuity between the two of them. The natural body was raised in glory. Michael Horton puts it very well. He wrote that, he said, the risen Christ, this is, some people can just put things so catchy and helpful. The risen Christ is not a different person, but a different sort of person than he was before. Now, we put all of that together, and it makes sense that Jesus would be recognizable to these friends of his, yet not immediately and easily so. They don't show the gladness of recognition until they've gotten to see his hands inside. They needed some help confirming that they were really seeing what they wondered if they were seeing. In fact, the other Gospels tell us that at first they thought that this was a spirit in the room with them. This is the newness of life that they are witnessing in Christ. But my friends, the implications of this go far beyond just amazement. It is amazing, and it's a wonderful thing to sit and hear and contemplate, but the implications are vast. Especially if we consider what we've just heard the Bible say about this new life that's on display, that this risen Christ is the first fruits of a new humanity. We're going to turn to the commissioning that we find in verses 21 to 23, but I just would encourage you to consider that what John has given us here is something that we do well to diligently hold on to. The risen Lord, offering his hands inside to be seen and touched, full of the Spirit, never to die again, it is for believers a picture of our future, of your future. See him there in his his reuniting, in his perfection. See him in his freedom from all of the limitations of this body, all of the weakness of this body. And see just how little ends when this life comes to an end. See how great are the promises that are waiting for us. The life that the risen Lord is walking around with, living in as the firstborn of many brothers, is a level of living that you and I have never experienced, but are going to. It is this resurrection life that Paul describes with an incredible phrase in 2 Corinthians 5.4. Just listen to how he puts this. He says, while we are still in this tent, you get it, this body, we groan being burdened, not wanting to be unclothed, but further clothed, so that what is mortal may be <coughs> excuse me, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. It is such an incredible way to describe this. That's what is waiting for us in death and finally resurrection. Mortality being swallowed up by life. And he ends like this: He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. May God's people take comfort, and even, dare we say, steadfast excitement at the sight of it here, 
walking, talking, breathing in John 20, showing us what he has in store for those who love him. But now just as quickly as he gives us this visual that we have seen, he gives us, John gives us something to hear from Jesus as well. Listen to the commission that Jesus issues to these men, starting at verse 21. And again, can you tell as we read this that it's, it's something that must be thought through carefully? Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now let's take this in three parts here. First, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And the way that he words this makes it clear what he is intending. He uses a comparative word, kathos, like, just as. Like the Father sent me, just, just as it's true that he sent me, even so I am sending you. He's describing a chain of commissioning, of sending that's going on. The Father sent him, and now he is sending them. We've heard our Lord describe his purpose here over and over again, the purpose of his coming in just these terms, haven't we? That he has come in a representative fashion from the Father. He has come not to do his will, but the will of the Father. He has come saying only what the Father has given him to say. Do you remember all of these things? Perfectly obeying the Father. He has come as one who was sent. He just said to Pilate two chapters ago, For this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And Jesus says here, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You might say that with these words, the men he is addressing make the change from being disciples to being apostles. The title of apostle has to do with their being sent out, right? This is his commissioning to them. And for reasons that I hope will be clear in the next few minutes, I want to suggest to you that it's really important to understand Christ to be addressing them as the apostles here. It is certainly true that we are all sent out into the world in a very real and significant sense. Uh, Paul will call all of those who are in Christ ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians But Jesus here is commissioning his apostles, which is to say he is establishing the church office of apostle. And understanding that helps us to hear this not so much as an individual emphasis upon each of them, although of course there's a sense that that's true, but rather to hear the emphasis as a collective emphasis on their collective confession, which will constitute the foundation of the church being laid. Just think of a couple of of statements that we read. You don't have to turn here if you don't want to. But there's two passages I would have you hear in light of that, back to back. One is Matthew 16, 16 to 19. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here is the confession of faith in Christ and of the authority and place of Christ. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, 
And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Does this sound a bit like what we just read? And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those things are said to Peter, but they're not intended for him alone. They're spoken to Peter as the one who spoke the confession, representing the disciples whom Christ had chosen. And the rock on which he will build his church is not so much just the disciples themselves, but rather it's their confession, voiced by Peter. It's that confession of Christ taken and then propagated in the disciples' authoritative teaching. That is what Jesus is going to use and is using to build his church. So compare that or pair it with Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Paul's writing to Gentiles and he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Then he describes that household. Verse 20, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You hear how this structure has been created and built. Christ is building his church. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And what's the foundation of that church that he is building? It's the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. Their testimony. Christ told them back in chapter 14 that What's going to happen is the Holy Spirit is going to come to them after he has departed and bring to their remembrance all that he taught them. You remember that? Their testimony creates the very foundation for the church. So back then in, in our text, John 20, 21, he is commissioning his apostles whom he is sending out even as the Father sent him out. Even on the same mission, that of building his bride, bringing his bride to perfection before the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in fact, recognizing the corporate focus here as, as Jesus commissions this group of men, the, the, this body of men, recognizing that corporate focus, and even recognizing the, the corporate focus of their work of foundation laying, it helps us very much to understand the context of what comes next. I'm talking about both verses 22 and 23. Look at those verses. This helps us understand what he's doing in verse 22. It says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is interesting. And it's produced a lot of conversation, as you can imagine. But all you have to do is remember the first chapters of the book of Acts, depending on your Bible, it might be the very next page you turn, which is a little bit frightening to think about how near we are coming to the, the end of John. But all you have to do is remember those opening chapters to know that this is not the beginning of the gift of the Holy Spirit that Christ has promised them in this gospel. The gift that will be bestowed on every individual believer as a down payment on God's great promises to us. Of that, Jesus will say to them after these events, this is Acts 1, 4 and 5, it says, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. He said, You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then, of course, at Pentecost, we see that come. 
I don't think that this is that. John's not messed up the history of the sending of this promise and has it happening here. So what is this then? What, what is happening as Jesus breathes? And by the way, it doesn't actually say breathes on them. It says breathe. He breathed and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The controversy is, does that verb breathe have to mean breathed on or not? And most people say it does not have to mean that. Uh, but the context would suggest that this is exactly the idea. But what's going on here? Well, some think that this is a symbolic foreshadowing of the event of Pentecost. That view is not very well represented in church history as a whole, but especially more recent commentators have made that, uh, that suggestion. I, so you often hear me reference D.A. Carson in his commentary, and that's how he thinks we ought to view this. Others, especially historically in the church, Calvin and many others, believe that Jesus is in some way here authorizing or spiritually empowering the work that he's commissioning them in. That there is some sort of an authorization and a, and a spiritual commissioning here uh, that comes from the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in a particular way. Either way, we take this, one thing would remain the same. If we take the first view that this is symbolically looking ahead to, then Jesus' breath and his words receive the Holy Spirit are pointing to the day of Pentecost, which is also the first day that they begin preaching and testifying to Christ, and the church expands, right? So we, we, we would see this tied to that foundation-building work. If we take it the second way, then you have direct empowering and authorizing accompanying his commission to them as apostles. Either way, the focus and the work that the Spirit is being said to attend here is corporate in nature and is stemming from their apostolic ministry. I hope that that makes sense. That's how seeing his address to them as apostles corporately helps us understand verse 22 a little bit better. In the same way, verse 23 is helped because verse 23 has statements in it that are only appropriate when thinking of a corporate body context. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you, withhold the forgiveness, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Is Jesus saying to us as Christians, I'm granting you the authority that when someone wrongs you and you don't want to forgive them, God says, well, okay, I don't forgive them either then. Is that, is that the, what's happening here? Of course, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is the very same idea as what Jesus said to the apostles in that Matthew 16 passage that we just read, as he described the keys of the kingdom. He even says it here in the same way that he does there. He says here of these sins. Notice, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Literally what he says there with the tense of the verb is a perfect tense reality. We talked about this several weeks ago when we went to Matthew 16. He says of those sins that they either forgive or withhold. He says that they have already been forgiven or have been withheld. In other words, who is it that has the authority here to forgive sin? The answer is God alone has the authority to forgive sin. He does not grant that authority to man. That would be the Roman Catholic error, wouldn't it? To say that a human priest actually dispenses forgiveness. Instead, this is describing a human authority that God has placed on earth 
who has been authorized to proclaim the means of that forgiveness and to legitimately guard the visible community, this body that's being built, where forgiveness is being enjoyed. And just like in verse 22, what is the power and the presence that legitimizes this? It's the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. If you just read right from verse 22 into verse 23, the link there is unmistakable. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Those are completely connected together, these ideas. The Spirit's reception, presence, authority, and what's happening in verse 23. Whether the Spirit is bestowed in verse 22 or only predicted, either way, the Spirit is the predication on which this authority is granted in verse 23. So the Holy Spirit then is one link between verse 23 and what we've already seen above. This is all dependent on the presence and power of the Spirit. The other link here is the corporate nature of what Jesus is commanding. You can think of it with a question. Who is being said to possess this authority? In verse 23. It's not Peter or John or Andrew in some specific way. It's the apostles as the foundation builders of the church. As those on whom Christ has granted this authority. In local churches, which by the way, what is a true local church. A local church is any gathering of God's people in covenant together where the word is rightly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, and church discipline is rightly maintained. In local churches, we say of these embassies of God's kingdom on earth, here's what we say about them. This is where God has ordained the forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed and enjoyed. To whom is forgiveness declared? By God, who grants forgiveness. It's declared to those who have repented of a life of sin and turned to Christ in faith. And we know well that that repentance and faith is visible in life, isn't it? You can answer this question. What does a good tree do? What does it bear? Good fruit. What does a bad tree bear? Bad fruit. This is clear teaching from Matthew 7. In a life that's dependent upon the Spirit of God, faith is made evident. And in the church, where, again, the very thing that unites us in local bodies and that explains our presence in that community is our profession of faith and reliance upon Jesus Christ for forgiveness. In the church, when one then shows a disregard for God's word by refusing to submit to its calls, the Bible commands a process of church discipline to occur. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 5. Let me read verses 9 to 13. He says to the church there in Corinth, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Listen to this. For what have I to do 
with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We have to, we have to think about what, what is behind a statement like verse 12 there. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? It gets that that's what's different about inside versus outside. Those outside of God's gathered people are those who have no forgiveness. They stand condemned. Those who are a part of God's people that he has adopted and brought into his family. What characterizes and defines them is that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness is proclaimed and enjoyed and experienced and reminded. This is what, is it, what it is to be inside. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? They already stand judged. That's, that's the difference. Now think about what's happening in the sort of circumstance he's describing there, when that kind of thing must happen. And that's happened in the life of this body, hasn't it? What is happening when we must purge the evil person from among us? Well, several things are happening. That person is being removed from the membership roles of this church, no longer identified as a member of our body. That's one thing. And in fact, it's important. Again, since the church is the assembly of the forgiven and redeemed, what's happening is that the church is declaring to that person, you have no basis to believe your sins are forgiven. You ought to be afraid for your soul. And we we pray that by that fear, God will lead you to repentance and restore you to his people. That's something that's happening in that instance. Another thing that's happening then very practically is that that person is no longer coming to the Lord's table, which is the place where our identity as members of God's family is visibly declared, rested in, celebrated. That comfort is denied to them. This is what happens, isn't it? And the question that we're presented with this morning is this one. What gives a church the right to do such a thing? to stand in that kind of judgment over an individual. I don't need to tell you, it's scandalous to the sensitivities of our day to suggest such a thing. But faithful churches do exactly that. What, what, what answer to that question do we find in the passage in front of us here? What gives a church the right to do such a thing? I hope you can see that the answer is Jesus, the Lord of the church, gives that right. It is Christ himself who has established a structure of spiritual authority between church member and church body. That's administered in different ways in different contexts. That's true. Many churches, ours included, grant the majority of that process to the elders as representatives of the body. Other churches do it much more, you might say, democratically and settle church discipline cases with a vote of each member. Either way that it's practiced, though, what we find here in verse 23 is that it is Jesus Christ himself who has established that right. And I hope that you might even be squirming in your seat a little bit when you hear me describe it as the word right. That is a good word, but there's a far better word to use, isn't there, than right. Surely the word responsibility or obligation is a far better word to describe this 
mandate that Jesus is giving to his apostles. A church body that refuses to enact this role that is described in John 20, 23 and commanded in 1 Corinthians 5, 13 is a church that, ref- a church that refuses that obligation is disobeying their Lord, aren't they? The sentence in verse 13 there of 1 Corinthians 5 is an imperative sentence. There's nothing we can do about that. It's a command. And we know that all the commands of God are good. We've seen something of the purposefulness that John writes his gospel with. I mean, think of him writing this and drawing our attention to this. Here is John who was there, who experienced this, reporting his first encounter with the risen Lord. And yet, he fixes his attention in his writing, and thus he fixes our attention on Jesus' act of establishing how his people were to be shepherded throughout the time between his first coming and his second coming. This is how the Lord of the church has acted to protect the witness of his body on this earth. He has empowered it through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit, And he has granted it authority on earth to declare who belongs and who does not to the kingdom of God. Who should be seen on this earth to possess forgiveness and who it is that should be very, very afraid and should flee to Christ for refuge. And in in those things, I think, lie two very easy and significant points of application for us this morning as we move toward closing. One, I say simply because I don't know everyone who is here, and that is just simply to ask, which of those are you? It's the kind of question that only benefits us to ask frankly from time to time. Which of those are you? Has God broken you over your life of rebellion against him that you came into this life living? Has he broken you such that you have put your trust in Christ and on his promises alone for rescue and forgiveness? If you have, then as you go forward, coming to know the word of God better and better that testifies to him and to his plans, as you go forward in that, you will find that it has no category whatsoever for a lone Christian. From the one another commands to the spiritual gifts you've been given, not for you, but to be a complement to a wider body. From all of these sorts of things, you will find that God places all his kingdom citizens into local embassies on earth, which we call local churches. And as you see that in the scriptures, the same spirit that has come to live in you will lead you to humble yourself and give yourself to others in a committed covenantal way in just such a context as that. So that's one application to consider, especially for any here who don't yet know the Lord or are new believers coming to understand his plans and his purposes. The second application would apply to the believers here. And I put it as a question. What do you think as you read verses 22 and 23? How do you react mentally and emotionally to these statements by Christ of authority, real spiritual authority in your life? 
We can see in this, can we, the basis on which Jesus can write letters to local churches in Revelation 2 and 3 with commendations and condemnations of their fidelity. He can do that because they are equipped with authority and thus responsibility. Thus the writer of Hebrews can issue the divine command in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be of no advantage to you. My friends, those kinds of statements only make sense at all in the context that we've seen this morning. And so the question is this, have you considered what that says about the significance of your church family and your church elders in your life? Do you regard those as relationships actually intended by God to bless you with weighty encouragement and wisdom and even obligation, a thing to be embraced and bought into. It's a very natural thing for all of us to hear this kind of thing and to feel a sense of reaction, a sense of offense even, if we're honest, at the idea. And I think when that happens, it's very important for us to slow down and think about the reason that that might be. It's, it's not always for the same reason. And I can't know how to respond until I have identified what is behind this reaction that I'm feeling. It could be, if you're reacting to this, if it's chafing, it could be that, that you're fearing a sinful and wrong application of such a relationship. For example, elders lording over their congregation in disobedience to Christ's command, instead of leading by self-sacrifice and as a servant. Or churches binding the consciences of their members without biblical warrant. Those kind of things happen all the time. They do happen. And they are grievous when they happen. So it could be that you're thinking of those kinds of things. And you're, you're not wrong to consider them. But my encouragement would be this. Think of other similar situations and how we handle them. Can parents sometimes exercise their parental role in sinful ways? And all the parents in the room said, amen. Right? All the children in the room said, amen. Sure. Of course, we can and we do. Should children generally then resent or fear the parent-child dynamic? We say, goodness, it's God-given as a means for our well-being. Why would we question the wisdom of God and what he's established? Are husbands capable of leading their wives in ways that are unbiblical? Yes. Would it be healthy for us to adopt the spirit of doubt and skepticism and negativity then about God's call for husbands to lead their wives and for wives to adopt a posture willingly of encouragement and following? And we say the same thing to that. Goodness, it's God-given as a means of our flourishing. Why would we question God's wisdom? It's no different here. The question always comes down to this. Was God being good? and wise when he chose to structure our relationships. And in this case, when he chose to structure our church, his body, as he has. What's the answer to that question? The answer is yes. And so we say again, will we allow God's word to soften us and our sense of self-sufficiency? We're very suspicious for a long time that we're self-sufficient. 
we're not self-sufficient? Will we allow God's word to soften us in exactly those ways so that we recognize with trust and even joy, we recognize that his church is a body that we are to obligate ourselves to, to commit our lives to, sharing and growing and giving and receiving, bearing burdens and bearing burdens. He uses his under-shepherds to shepherd, to keep watch over the souls in his beloved body. Do we embrace these things that God has provided? This is the task, my friends, that the risen Christ is giving to us as we get to hear him commission his apostles as the foundation of this body that he is going to build. Seeing it like this this morning lets us use the word body at the same time in two very meaningful ways. It's kind of beautiful. Even as his risen body is put on display for us to see here and celebrated, at the same moment he is establishing his body that will go on living on this earth when he has departed it and representing the light of God's kingdom. All this wonderful display he accomplishes Think of it, by the use of you and me. His humble creatures, he uses jars of clay to show the world glorious things. And we say, may God bless the work of his hands. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would attend your word preached this morning to the end that we would be more trusting of your ordained means, that we would be more honored at the part that you call each of us to play in your great plans of redemption. Lord, I pray for our church body. I pray for the members that there would be trust and love for their elders. I pray for the elders of this body, Lord, that there would be humility and a fixation on going as far as the word would send and not a step farther. God, for all of us, I pray that you would make us patient with one another, quick to forgive and to reconcile and to continue in all things to entrust ourselves to you who knows what you are doing. God, cause us to feel the honor that you have granted us as you call us each to play parts in your great plan of redemption. And we thank you that as we labor, we get to labor with the sight in mind of our risen Lord who is but the firstborn of many brothers. We ask you for the endurance to run our race well and to finish it well until the day when we see you face to face. All this we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.